Go ahead and take a seat. Well, good evening. Um, thank you so much, worship team, for, for leading some of those great songs and directing our attention to our Lord. Um, so, so happy to be here with you guys. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, uh, my name is David, and I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lighthouse. I help oversee our worship services and music ministry, and right now I'm currently helping out with our youth ministry program as well. Um, and so, Pastor Allen uh, asked me uh, when the last time was I preached for Praxis, and I had to think a little bit. And I don't know why it was so difficult for me to remember, because as, as, as I remember when it actually happened, it crystallized for me how significant that was. And it was the week before the world shut down in COVID. Um, how many of you guys were part of Praxis back then in like early 2020? Okay. And so some of you guys may remember that sermon. It was, you guys were studying First Peter at the time, which sounds like a million years ago. And I remember as I was writing the sermon, right, thinking, may, may I just say something about this whole coronavirus thing that seems to be coming up in the news a little bit. I don't know how relevant it's going to be. I should probably say something. I just had this thought as I was sitting in the, you know, in the pews waiting to come up to preach. And I got to the part of the sermon where like, I thought this would be an appropriate application. And I completely forgot about it. Just rolled right over it. And I, stopped this, I got through the sermon and it's like, you know what? It's probably fine. Don't have to worry about it. And if only I prayed for it. Who knows? Things may have gone differently. Um, but God was really, really kind uh, to allow me to preach then, and I'm happy to be back now. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but Pastor Allen and I actually go way, way back. Uh, we went to college together. Has it been 20 years? It's been, it's been 20 years, man. <laughs> and we were in college 20 years ago. And um, I think, yeah, so Allen's a year older than me. We went to AACF together at UCLA. And uh, yeah, God was so gracious, I think, for us to both be exposed to biblical teaching and to grow in theology and our love for the word and our love for the Lord during those times. Those are all the complimentary things I could say. Uh, there were a lot more embarrassing things I could say, but you can talk to me about that after the sermon. But uh, Alan is uh, just a precious friend, and I'm just so excited. Um, he continues my, my lifelong goal of just allowing all my friends to come and work here at Lighthouse. This is my, my mission and my goal in ministry. Um, but with that, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn uh, to the book of Romans, which, as I understand, is the book you've been studying. The book of Romans will be in chap Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 2. Oh, sorry, verses 1 through 8. Um, and before we actually get into that text, uh, I'll pray for us. And I actually want to, also want to pray for our brother, Alessandro. Uh, I understand that in 12 minutes, uh, his wife, Chen Pei, is going to be induced uh, to have a baby. Uh, so I don't think he's going to come tonight. He probably won't. If he does, we're going to kick him out and send him back to the hospital. Um, but you meet, we'll be praying for him and for a safe delivery for their baby. Uh, and um, yeah, we're excited. We're excited for God's grace in their family's life. So let's pray for our time in God's word and for um, Alessandro's family. God, we thank you so much for uh, this time to be able to turn to your word. And I, I think of these um, young men and young women who have come from very busy lives, very busy days and weeks, um, their hearts are uh, overflowing with many things, uh, many good and wonderful things, some hard and difficult things, and you have brought them here to this moment uh, to come with each other before you, before your word. And so I pray, Father, that you would allow them to see what they need to see in your word, that your word would provide the adequate and right truth, um, the right picture of your son, um, the right glorious truth about uh, life in the gospel, and that that would be... Um, yeah, sufficient to, to carry them along yet again in a life of faithfulness. 
God, we also pray for uh, our brother Alessandro and his wife Chen Pei and their boys as they anticipate um, the birth of uh, their third child. And God, we ask for safe delivery, for wisdom for the doctors and skill for them. We pray for um, Alessandro and Chen Pei to really take in this moment and to savor it. Uh, with each you know, subsequent child, it kind of goes by in a blur. So I pray, Father, that you would allow them uh, to really see your goodness at work um, in this evening. So would you allow there to be no complications? Uh, we pray for us as a church family to be able to surround them and love them and care for them during this joyful time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, last week, uh, Pastor Allen preached just an awesome sermon uh, from one of the great refrigerator magnet passages of Scripture, right? Romans 12, 1 to 2. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, chapter 12, 1 and 2, just by way of reminder. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You put that on a bumper sticker, right? That we are a living sacrifice, right? We present our bodies holy and acceptable to God. We do everything not conformed to this world, right? So many wonderful, massive, epic realities are in this passage that Alan wonderfully exposited last week. And I'm sure that you're left with a question, well, what does that look like? What happens when Romans 12, 1 to 2 comes to life? You have these, this language of this radical, gospel-fueled, sacrificial living. What does it actually look like? Do I need to drop everything I'm doing and go into vocational ministry? Do I need to go overseas and become a missionary in the hardest places in the world? Do I need to reconsider my career? Do I need to be a bolder evangelist at work? Do I need to give financially more sacrificially? Do I need to forego certain earthly pleasures that I really enjoy? And the answer is maybe. Maybe you have to do those things. But it won't just be from this passage. And as we go on in Romans chapter 12, we'll see that the life that Paul is actually calling us to is not excluding the things I just mentioned, but it's a completely different picture, an unexpected one. As elevated as Paul's calling is for us in these opening verses in Romans 12, when it comes time for Paul to actually put boots on the ground and describe what this radical, sacrificial, gospel-fueled life looks like, he says that it looks like you serving in your church. Is that kind of an unexpected way that this passage would develop? that a life of radical gospel-fueled sacrifice is a life of service and ministry to your church. Now, there's a wide range of people here. Some of you come here to Lighthouse and you are regular members. Some of you just come to Praxis. Some of you are members at other churches. Right? Some of you serve nonstop, like in so many areas. Everywhere I look around the church, like you're there, like you're haunting the building. There's some of you who aren't serving at all. You're, and you're just hoping, man, dang, I should have like noped out of here during the opening prayer, right? This is not the sermon for me. There are lots of you who are in between this range of things. There's some of you who are serving and you love it. You can't get enough of it. You're so energized by it, so excited. And there are others of you who serve and you are so discouraged and you're so tired and you're so worn out and you feel so guilty that you feel tired and worn out because you feel like you can't leave. The whole thing depends on you. 
There's a whole wide range of people's experiences and wide range of the way people are living out this call to serve right now. But my hope is as we look at this passage more closely in the following verses of what Paul has to say, that we're not all just going to serve more. Though, spoiler alert, I do hope that some of you will be serving more. What my hope is, is that we're going to serve better with the right motivation, with the right heart, and with the right worship. And so Paul's going to continue on in Romans chapter 12, and he's going to give us this picture of service. And we're going to see six marks of our service in the church. But let's read the rest of our passage, starting at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his, <clears throat> uh, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's holy word. All right, so in this passage, we're going to see six marks of our service in the church. And actually, we're going to start by backing up into the verses that Pastor Allen preached last week, not just because, I, not because he didn't do a good job, he did an outstanding job, but because I think it is so foundational to understanding why it is that we serve, that we have to start there. And if we miss it, we run the risk of damaging our service and damaging those that we serve. And so our service starts with the first mark, and that is that we have to be gospel-fueled, gospel-fueled. And again, this will be review for you, but Paul starts this section by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And every preacher says this, right? I think Pastor Allen said this last week. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore? Yeah, right. Okay, you know it. Okay, you know the rule. So in, in light of all this stuff, and therefore, he's pointing back to all these things that have happened in Romans 1 through 11. And you know this, right? That Paul is using the book of Romans to expound upon the glories of the gospel, that we were lost in sin and that because of our sin, that put us at odds with our maker, a holy and righteous God. And because of that distance, we deserve to be cast out from the presence of God forever in hell. And the only way that we could possibly escape it is one, either we pay that debt ourselves by going to hell forever with no hope of rescue or if someone else comes and pays that debt in our place, which is exactly what Jesus Christ does. Jesus comes into the world as the perfect savior. He lives the perfect life that we're unable to lead. And what, God, what he does is he goes to the cross and takes the punishment that we deserve upon, our, upon himself. All the wrath and anger that God, uh, I deservedly earned because of my sin and my rebellion, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. And Jesus rose again from the dead with a promise of new life and resurrection power. And what that means then is that when God looks at me, he's not angry with me anymore. I'm not his enemy anymore. I am his child. I'm an adopted son. I've been united with him in Christ. And because of that, I have eternal life. Those are the mercies of God. 
That is the precious gospel that every believer has their entire existence anchored into. And Paul is saying, therefore, in light of those mercies, everything else will come. If you are to think about what serving in ministry and in the church looks like, it must start there. It must start with the gospel. Before you can do anything for God, before you can do anything for others, you have to realize that there was nothing you could do for God or do for others in your sin. And that the only way that you could be righteously restored to a right relationship with God was for Jesus to have come and done everything for you. If you try to serve out of desire to impress God, to make up the distance in between in your relationship with God, to somehow earn God's favor or approval, to somehow get yourself on the right side of God, you are doomed to failure. None of it will be good enough. The only way you can serve faithfully and joyfully in a way that honors God is to look back on the mercies of God, everything that God has already done before you do anything. Paul says, therefore, because of this mercy, I'm appealing to you to offer your life as a, um, <clears throat> offer yourself in a life of service to God. Serving always has in its rearview mirror the miraculous, merciful work of the gospel to save you from sin and to save you from yourself. I, I think there are a number of different ways that having the gospel as our foundation and fuel and our motivation, it really must be our anchor in our serving. I think one way that this helps us is that the gospel frees you from guilt in serving. I think all of us can kind of relate to that feeling that there's just so much to be done. There's so many needs that are around us. There's so many opportunities that are there. We know the preacher's going to come forward and tell us about all the, the starving children and children's ministry that need help, right? And you just feel this overwhelming sense of guilt that if I don't do it, I'm not good enough. I'm not a good Christian. I'm not earning my keep. I'm not pulling my weight. I'm just falling short of the standard. And that is the wrong motivation to serve. We don't serve out of guilt because the gospel has freed us from guilt. The gospel tells us that there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There is no righteousness you can achieve and no failure you can drop to that will ever change God's standards or God's reckoning of you. You will never, ever be able to live up to his standards. Instead, God has placed the standard Jesus' righteousness into you and onto you so that no matter where you are and what you've done, he looks at you with the love of a father because of Christ's righteousness. You don't serve because of guilt. You serve because of glad response to the freedom that God has accomplished for you in the gospel. I was thinking about this with my own family, right? I have three kids who are 11, nine, and seven, and they serve in our family, at least they're supposed to. But there's a reason why they serve, and there's a reason why they don't serve, or there is, you know, you know what I'm saying. So my kids don't serve in my home in order for them to earn a place in my family. Right? It's not like we do like a score sheet at the end of the day and say, okay, you didn't empty the dishwasher, you didn't fold your laundry, you left the toilet seat up. You know, like, it's like, oh, guess what? You're not my son today. We'll try again tomorrow. You know, that's not the way serving works in our family. We expect them to serve. They have to serve. They should serve. They must serve. But it's because they already are members of the family. 
It's because they already belong to us in a way that will never be revoked, that they have this joyful responsibility. They may not see it that way, but they have this joyful responsibility to participate in the life of the family, which includes serving and helping. For them, it ought not be this thing that, ah, oh, I got to serve out of guilt. No, they serve out of freedom and belonging because they know they belong to this family. And so it is with you. So the gospel frees you from guilt in serving. I also think the gospel frees you from fear in serving. I think all of us have been in those situations where there's an opportunity to serve, or maybe you're already in the situation where you're serving, and you're just filled with dread. It's like, oh, I can't do it. I'm not ready. I'm not mature enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not whatever enough. But if you have received mercy from God, then you are called and qualified to serve. You need not fear not being able to serve, not being enough to serve. Now, it may not be that you're called to serve everywhere. And we're we'll talking about that a little bit later, that there are some areas of service that some of us are particularly called to, and we have to use wisdom and discernment in that. But you are called to serve somewhere, somewhere in the Christian life, somewhere in your church, somewhere in your relationship, somewhere in the spheres of life that God has entrusted to you, you are called and equipped to be a servant. This is what God calls you to. This is what he saved you for. This is what he's given you a new life in Christ for. So you can be his ambassador and a servant in Christ. You don't have to fear messing up or not being enough because the gospel forgives us of our mess-ups and provides us hope when we would never be enough. So the gospel frees you from fear and serving. I mean, do you see why our serving has to start with this? It has to start with being gospel-fueled. Good. The second mark of our serving in ministry is that it must be consuming. It must be consuming. So Paul goes on in verse one. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, Alan really expounded this in, in such great detail last week. I'll just kind of briefly touch on this, but right, what, what is Paul saying here? What is the logical outcome of the gospel and the mercies of God? Right, he could have just said, okay, go serve in your church. Right, that would be true. But instead he's calling us to something far more expansive. He says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right, the language of sacrifice would have made sense to Paul's readers, especially those who were saved out of Judaism. Right, the worship of the Old Testament was centered around the act of sacrifice. As a devout Jew, you'd bring your animal or you'd bring your crop and you'd offer to the priest. The animal was slaughtered and prepared. His body was laid upon the sacrificial altar and was completely consumed by fire. And if you wanted to worship again at a later time, you'd bring another animal and you'd have it slaughtered and completely consumed by fire. This was the life of a believer in the Old Testament. And what does Paul say is life for the believer in the New Testament? To his readers in this letter, to us today, he says it's exactly the same, that life is still about worship. Life is still about sacrifice. It is still about offering a body to be completely consumed. But here's the difference. It is you presenting your body 
to be sacrificed. We are now required to lay the entirety of our being on the altar of service to the Lord, and we allow ourselves to be consumed until there's nothing left. And notice that we are a living sacrifice, right? You can only offer an animal once, right? Because it only dies once and it's consumed once. After that, it's like serving God leftovers. But we serve God as a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves not once, but over and over and over and over again. I think Pastor Allen said the last week that it's one thing to die for someone. It's an entirely different thing to live for them. And that is what God is calling us to, an all-consuming life of service. I think this reveals a lot about what serving is supposed to be like. Just think about what your commitment is like to your local church, whether Lighthouse or somewhere else. Would you describe it as consuming? That it is just eating its way through your life, that it takes up all of you, that all of you is in on this thing, that the entirety of your being is focused and committed to this idea that my life is a sacrifice for the good of my church and the good of God's people that I get to live with. As I reflected on like what it means for our serving to be this consuming sacrifice, there were a couple ideas that came to mind. And one thought was that there is no area of life, there's no area of your life that God does not own. There's no area of your life that God does not own. Right? We are so instinctively trained and instinctively wired to want to compartmentalize our lives that we think of some things as belonging to God and some things as belonging to us. Right? We're so good at dividing ourselves into these different areas of life. Right? There's life at home with our family. There's life at work. There's our free time. There's church. There's our relationships. And you kind of go down the line and we're willing to offer some parts of our lives to the Lord. And we tell him, you can have this but this part over here is completely off limits. I can't serve over there because it would completely interrupt this other thing I got going on in my life. And that would be like an Old Testament saint bringing his goat to the sacrifice, saying, God, you can have this leg. That's fine. But the rest of it, I kind of want to hold on to my own. No, God is supposed to get the whole thing. And it's the same thing with you. God gets the whole thing. He gets all of you. But what are the parts of your life that you just feel like you can't give it up? When I, when I put this idea of, well, what area of life do you feel like God might be calling you to serve? And just instinctively, what is the first thought that comes to the mind of the thing that I don't know if I could give that up in order to serve in that way? I don't know if I could give up that time. I don't know if I could give up that area of comfort. I don't know if I could give up that much of my, my relationship. What would it be? What is the thing that you fear giving up? Maybe there's an opportunity to serve, but it's just not your preference, right? It's too late. It's too early. It's too long. It's too short to be worth your while. It's not in an area that you're experienced in. Experienced in. It's an area you have too much experience in and you feel like you're overqualified. But whatever it is, if there's an area of need and God is calling you to it, God is calling you to offer the entirety of your being. So as you're evaluating the way that you serve 
or the way that you don't serve in your local church family, consider, is there a part of your life that you are not wholly offering to the Lord as a living sacrifice? So our service is meant to be consuming. Third, our our service is meant to be humble. It's meant to be humble. This kind of all-consuming, gospel-fueled service, it comes about, Paul says, through a change in how you think about your life. He wants us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says we should be thinking differently. We should lead to actually discerning how God wants us to live our lives, right? That's great. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to know what God's will is? Who doesn't want to have their mind transformed so they actually understand what it is that God wants from them? Wouldn't that be wonderful for you to have a clear picture of what God's will is? Now, what kinds of thoughts is it that God wants you to have? What is his will for you? Or read on in verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, one of the ways that God wants you to transform the way you think because of the mercies of God that transcended into your life, that are, as you are now offering yourself as a living sacrifice, the way that your thinking should be transformed is that you should be more humble. You should not have a big head about yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't have a higher estimation of yourself than you should. Don't be proud. If we are to be servants, we must be humble servants. And I think this is one of the greatest things that hinders our ministry, that hinders our service to others. Our lack of humility is part of the reason why we don't serve, to be quite honest. Right, a ministry opportunity comes up. You know, Allison comes up and makes an announcement about some ministry need that comes up in Praxis or here at church. Maybe someone even asks you face-to-face. And the thought that runs through your mind is, there's no way. No way would I ever do something like that. I'm way better than that. Don't they know where I went to school? Don't they know how many degrees I have? Don't they know what I do for a living? How could they possibly ask me to do something like that? I think the, uh, the Christianized version of that answer is, oh, I think my gifting is in a different area, <laughs> right? Have you ever thrown that out there in that way or heard that before? Right, and what's lying, what lies behind that? It's this attitude of, I'm just better than that. And what is that? We have a higher estimation of ourselves than we ought to have. And that doesn't just prevent those from, who, who ought to serve from serving, I think this is often the case of those of us who have been in a particular area of ministry for a long time, right? We develop this case of seniority, where maybe you've been in practice for a long time, you've been in a lighthouse for a long time, or your church for a long time, and you think to yourself, you know, I've put in my dues. I've been here six months, kind of know how these things work. And, you know, I'll let one of the new folk take care of that, let them earn their keep, you know. But for us, those of us who have arrived, you know, we'll just sit back, let them enjoy, you know, in the the bliss of serving, I've already tasted and seen that the serving is good and I am quite full, thank you very much. In fact, it's those who have served in the church for a long time, I think, that are in particular danger of having a proud attitude when it comes to serving. Right, serving, 
becomes routine for a lot of us. It's about as routine as brushing our teeth. You do it all the time, at the same time, the same way, and before long, you put about as much thought into serving as you do putting toothpaste on your toothbrush. And you stop relying upon the Lord for grace and strength. And as much as you say that you're serving the Lord, you really haven't thought about him. You're not dependent on him. And what is that? It is thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That, you know, I've been doing this long enough. I think I can just get by. I can lean upon my experience and my gifting and my abilities. I really don't need the Lord's help. And this is an indicting question for me to think about as a, as a preacher. But in your area of ministry, wherever you're serving, when was the last time you prayed and asked God to help you in it? And not because there was like a scheduled meeting that where you had to go and pray because that was the thing you had to do, right? Whether you're serving in children's ministries, prepping a Sunday school lesson, helping with connections on Sunday morning, being part of a worship team, helping with parking in the parking lot, setting up chairs in the, in the, in the fellowship hall. When was the last time you came before that call to serve and realized, God, I can do nothing apart from you? Your, Jesus says that apart from him, I can do nothing. Would you help me with this? I don't want to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. I need to serve in this moment with humility, not just before other people, but before you. I'm utterly dependent on you. I think another way our pride creeps in, and this is really insidious, is that sometimes we can really think that we're doing God a favor with our service. And we probably never say it this way, but I think the basic thought that runs through our hearts sometimes is, man, these guys are so lucky I showed up today. I don't know what they would have done if I hadn't been here. You know what? Not only are they lucky, God is lucky. God, lucky God that I showed up today. Man, you're welcome, God. Or we get impatient and frustrated with the people that we serve with. We judge those who aren't serving as much as we'd like them to, or they don't serve in the way that you would want them to. And really what our heart is screaming, you would never say this out loud, but what your heart screams is, why can't they be more like me? Why aren't they this perfect example of service like I am? Why aren't they as gifted and generous and humble as me? And what we know is that God opposes this kind of pride. He is in direct opposition to those that are proud. We ought to be wary of such pride creeping into how we serve. The real question is not whether you have pride in your heart, just where and to what degree it's affecting you. Instead, we need to be sober minded. We need to think clearly about who we are and what we really are. That we are beggars before the feet of a holy God. We are the product of an undeserved grace and mercy from the hands of a generous Savior and nothing more. We didn't come into this world having anything, earning anything, deserving anything. And the fact that you serve in the capacity you do is a grace and any fruit that has come from that is a grace. We deserve nothing. And the last thing we ought to have is pride in our abilities to serve. Instead, we serve out of faith, out of a belief and a trust that Christ is the great treasure and the delight of our hearts. But even in this passage, where does that faith come from? Where Paul says that the faith that you have, it is, is, it is your faith. You possess it. You actually have this faith. You believe, but it has been assigned to you by God. 
right? The very faith that is motivating you to serve comes from God himself. You don't even take credit for your faith. We have to examine ourselves. Is it possible that the attitude towards service that we have, whether we're serving or not, in whatever capacity you are serving, has it been tainted by too high a view of yourself? God opposes the proud, but we know the corollary is true. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we would humble ourselves and see ourselves as lowly and needy, that is where grace abounds. The grace is to be sustained in serving opportunities that have been going on forever and ever that seems so difficult. Grace awaits for you there if you are humble. In the situations where you're serving with people that are so difficult, trying to love people that are so wearing and burdensome, and you just don't know how much you're going to have the resource to care for them. If you are humble, grace waits for you there. When you get to the end of the week and, and there's some serving opportunity that you know you signed up for, but you just want to call it in because you're so tired, grace waits for you in your humility and crying out to the Lord to give you strength one more week. God gives grace to the humble. And that's what he calls our service to be. What are we on? Number four? Number four. I think it's number four. The next mark of serving, I think it's four, <laughs> is that it is to be communal. To be communal. Uh, I'm so thankful that serving in ministry is meant to be something that happens in a community. Uh, there was a number of years ago when I was, I was scheduled to preach on a Sunday at Lighthouse and it was like a Saturday afternoon, and I'm kind of finishing things up. And I have this thought while I'm writing the message. I don't know why I'm doing this. Like I actually handwrite my messages. I don't. I'm like hand, finishing up my message, okay? And I, I remember thinking, like, it's weird that like the worship leader hasn't like contacted me to talk about the worship set for the next day. Because normally there's some conversations that happen between the music leader and the preacher to um, to kind of work out like what would be appropriate songs and what would thematically be you know, a good tie-in and stuff like that. It's like, oh, that's odd. And so I, I look at the, the schedule to figure out, well, who was the worship leader so that you know, we can kind of a conversation. And lo and behold, it's me. And unbeknownst to myself, I had been double booked to both lead worship on a Sunday and preach on a Sunday. And, and I just like, this would be just the worst possible Sunday for people to come too, right? Because this it's just the David Lee show, and no one wants that. It'd be like, you know, over here, like playing, it's like, la la la, amen. And I'd have to like scoot over to like the, the music stand where the thing is. And it's like, that'd be so awkward, you know? And, and I, just, I was trying to figure out how do I get out of this thing? And so I called Mark Cotto, who is one of our deacons, and he's been, he was the first worship leader the Lighthouse ever had. And so I called him, I was like, dude, could you please, any chance, bail me out? and lead worship tomorrow on super short notice. And Mark was super gracious. And to this day, I, I counted it such a blessing that he served me in that way. But it was one of these moments where, the, especially as I was preaching the next day, I am so thankful that ministry is not the David Lee show. And I'm so thankful that ministry and serving in the church is not this one person thing that only one person does all this stuff that is meant to be this communal activity that the whole body of Christ is engaged with. I'm so thankful that God has created his church to operate not as a means of highlighting an individual or one person, but to display the body of Christ working together. The church functions in community with people serving, not in isolation, but for the good of other people. 
That's what Paul's getting at in verse four. Look at verse four. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul loves to use this illustration of the body to describe the church. It's such a helpful picture of what the church is, right? What is a body, right? Each of us only has one, right? And it's one unified whole. And yet each unified whole body has individual members, organs, features that are so different and they serve different functions. And yet all of their differences, they don't conflict, they don't harm or compete with one another. They function together for the good of the entire body. And this, Paul says, is what the church is meant to be. It is a living, breathing communal entity. It is this unified whole with individual different members that serve for the benefit of one another. I think we have a temptation to read these verses, Romans 12 verses one and following, and we tend to interpret them very individualistically, right? So it's like, oh, I'm supposed to offer myself, me, singular, as a living sacrifice. I am supposed to have a transformed mind, me, singular, my mind. But what Paul actually is talking about here is in the plural. And it's hard to see that in the English, but he's talking about the plurality of his, leaders, of his readers and he's saying, you all are supposed to be doing this together. Paul has in mind, not individuals, but the church. We as the church offer our bodies together. We are transformed in the renewal of our minds together. We discern the will of God together because we are organically, spiritually linked with one another. And I think this is one of the strongest cases that can be made for actually being members of the church, right? Not just someone who attends, not just someone who shows up every now and then, but a covenanted member of a local congregation submitting yourself to a local leadership, covenanting together with a group of believers. Right? It's, it's great that you come here to practice. We're so thankful that you're here. It's great that you go to Sunday services. But this life that God is calling to you, of radical gospel-fueled sacrifice and service is meant to be in, in, in taking place in the larger landscape of a life of a church it has to. That's the only place that God imagines is taking place. And I'm not even saying that you have to be part of Lighthouse. You have to be part of this church as if we were like the only church worth being a part of. That's definitely not true. But whatever church you're a part of, you must be committed to them and committed to living life with them. I love the specific way that Paul views this connection at the end of the verse, that we are individually members of, one of another. Like you'd almost expect them to say that we are members of one body. That almost seems to flow a little more naturally, not to, not to critique him or anything. Can you do that, critique Paul? I don't know. That would make sense, right? And it would, make, it would be true. But instead, he says, we're members one of another. Right? I am not just, I'm not just an ear for the church as a whole. I'm supposed to be your ear. You are not just a foot for the church. You are a foot for the individual who is sitting next to you. Right? What this is calling for is so much more than just being a name on a roster, sitting in a room full of people that you somehow have affiliation with but don't know. Paul is saying that if we are members of the same fellowship together, the same church together, you have a claim on my life 
and I have a claim on yours. That you are obligated to my good and I'm obligated to your good. We are members one of another. I think what this points to is that we serve people best when we know people best. We serve people best when we know people best. When we were truly part of their lives, when we're members one of another. Right, for those of you who serve right here at Praxis, in children's ministries, youth ministries, ushering, parking, music, how can you truly know the people that you are serving? And how can you truly know the people that you are serving with? I mean, can you get past the job? Get past the job of serving, right? Whatever the task is and see the people that God has placed you with because that's ultimately what serving is. It's meant to, it's meant to accomplish. It's, allow, it's supposed to allow you to know people better, to love them better, right? So what questions can you ask? Right? What bridges can you build? What time can you allot in your serving so you can really be members one another with the people that you are serving and the people that you are serving with? How can you take an interest in their life in the circumstance to better know them and serve them. So our serving is meant to be communal. Fifth, our serving is meant to be strategic. Strategic. So if the church is one body with these different members, how are the members different? They differ not in value or importance, but they differ in function. They have different responsibilities and roles to play in the body. And now Paul is transitioning to discuss the nature of these differences in, this, in verses six and seven. And he talks about gifting. Look at verse six. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So we'll stop right there. So he's talking here about spiritual gifts. Okay, now this topic of spiritual gifts is a huge one. And it's not one that we're going to really explore fully. Pastor Allen promised to answer all your questions after praxis, if you have any. But in summary, spiritual gifts were God-given abilities that God granted to his believers to serve the church, okay? Particularly as the early church was being established before the close of the New Testament canon, okay? Uh, But what's really interesting is that every discussion, every discussion of spiritual gifts in scripture is not really about spiritual gifts. Like all the burning questions that people have about what spiritual gifts are and what they aren't, it's not really about that. Every time you encounter them in scripture, they are mentioned and discussed in scripture to help explain how Christians are supposed to serve and love one another. That's why they're mentioned. There are a lot of other questions that we might have and they're important questions to consider, but they're secondary to this first reality that the, the discussion exists to help us understand, well, how can we love one another? How do we serve one another better? I don't know if you guys have ever taken like a spiritual gifts inventory. That used to be super popular in the churches I grew up in. Like, I don't know, it's like when the Sunday school teachers ran out of something to do. It's like, well, spiritual gifts inventory. We'll see if it changed from last month, right? And you have like, actually, I looked them up to see like what people did. I don't know why I said I looked it up like this. Again, as if I'm looking up some physical document. I, I looked it up on the interwebs. And I... And just to see like what spiritual gifts inventories look like these days. And I found one that one organization put out. It was like, I was going to take it until I saw it was like 80 questions long. It's like, you know what? I don't need to know. 
like, I'm okay. No one's got time for that, right? But anyway, you go through this battery of questions, right, to help you discern, like, you know, whether or not you have spiritual gifts or in what way you do. It's like, and some of them are kind of leading. It's like, could you see yourself maybe as being, I don't know, say, unmarried for the rest of your life? It's like, um, it might be a little leading. I don't know if that would be something. Or it's like, oh, yeah, do you enjoy alphabetizing stuff and like organizing things, perhaps in an administrative way? You know, they're just very leading kinds of questions. And you get to the end of it, right? And you kind of get this list and there are always some, some spiritual gifts that you're like, oh, please don't give me this one. <laughs> you know, please don't give me that one. I, you know, it's cool. If you get something cool like prophecy, right? Or something awesome, but you've, all of a sudden you get the one like administration helps. What is that nonsense, right? You want something good. But <clears throat> the end goal, right, in those situations shouldn't be well, knowing what your gift is. That's not the point. The end goal of thinking about gifting and thinking about the ways that God has made each of us uniquely is that we are supposed to love God with however he's made you. That's the point. However God has made you and in whatever way he's gifted you, you are to use those things strategically to love others. So in this specific passage, Paul lists seven gifts here. And this is not meant to be exhaustive. He's using these as examples. But he breaks them up into these two broad sections, right? The first group includes these first four. And the emphasis Paul seems to have is that you strategically use the gifts that God has given to you, right? So he says prophecy in proportion to faith. He's emphasizing this is something that is given to you by God. So God has given this thing to you. So use it, prophecy, and then you have service, teaching, and exhortation. You have this pattern, right? If you have the gift of blank, then do it. If you have the gift of serving, then serve. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If the gift of exhortation, then you exhort. And here's the point. If God has gifted you in a particular way, if God has given you something to use, a talent or a resource or a passion, then use it. Use it for his glory, Use it to serve and love others. Be smart with the hand that God has given to you and use it strategically. Um, growing up, my mom was a nutritionist, which meant that food in my family was interesting to say the least. Everything was like non-fat, reduced fat, low fat, low taste. That was just generally speaking was the vibe in the Lee household. And, but every now and then, right, some auntie would sneak us something awesome. And so the thing that I loved as a kid that I very rarely ever got was candy and particularly chocolate. And, and it was something that was like a, like a rare unicorn moment when I would ever get a whole chocolate bar. I felt like that was just something that existed in movies and they didn't really you know, ever exist in my neighborhood. But every now and then one would like magically fall from the sky like manna and I would be given this chocolate bar. And I remember like just seeing this precious, precious thing that I never got to enjoy and just trying to think when, I don't wanna waste this, when is the right time to eat this candy bar? And so I would put it in my desk drawer and I would wait and months would go by. And they, I'd open the drawer, look at it. Nope, it's not right. It's not the right time. It's not worthy. It's not a good moment, right? And hold on, I wait. And sometimes years would pass by with this, this poor Snicker bar, like hanging out in my, in my and some, guys, some of you guys are like, Snicker bar? You hold out for a Snicker bar? Yeah, but it, that was all I had. And so I was just sitting there in my drawer. And years would pass by, and I finally I open it up, and I take a bite out of it. And what has happened? The whole thing's gone rancid. It's like melted and then congealed again, and it melted, congealed again, because my room got really hot. And it was awful. And this treasure 
that would have been gifted to me was wasted because it wasn't used. And the same goes with the way that God has built you specifically. If Scripture tells us that you were wonderfully knit together in your mother's room and by God's design that you are especially crafted being in the image of God, that you have been uniquely blessed and gifted as a child of God, that means that you have gifts and talents and resources and passions that you have to use and you can't stuff into the desk drawer of your life and waste it. In what way is God calling you to be strategic about the ways he's wired you? I think you can think about who God has made you to be and the ways he's gifted you in three categories. That you have talents, you have treasure, and you have time. Talents, treasure, and time. I think of talents is just like your abilities, your skills, your personality. And I think for every person here, you are good at stuff, lots of stuff. The question is, are you using those things to love and serve others or are you selfishly hoarding them for yourself? Some of you are good with kids, right? Kids hate me, sometimes even my own. But for some of you, you are just like a magical creature. You just walk into a room and children just flock to you like some kind of mythical being, right? Are you leveraging that for the glory of God? We are always looking for help in children's ministries. I'm looking help for in my children's ministries at home. You can come help me. Like some of you are musically gifted. Like why in the world would God in his sovereign plan decide that you were going to take 12 years of piano growing up, right? That you went to the highest echelons of CM, right? Why? Is it so that you can complain about your Asian upbringing? No, it's because you can, so you can steward it for the glory of God and to love the church family. Like use your musical abilities to serve others. Some of you are organized, I am ashamed of the way my office looks right now. I am not an organized person. But for some of you, like you just wake up out of bed, you snap your fingers and it's like Mary Poppins, like everything just falls into place. The whole universe is alphabetized and color coordinated. Everything's awesome. How can you use that to love people and help organize their lives? (laughs) Some people need help. Some of you are great communicators. Like you're just gifted with words and you just have a way of talking with people that sets them at ease and is so clear. How can you use that to be able to better communicate the gospel? Better communicate the truth of God's word to people who really need to hear it. Some of you are great listeners. Like you just, people just, you're just known for being someone who can sit there and not talk (laughs) and understand and be able to really empathize with where people are at and, and process their life. I mean, have you considered, well, how can I not just listen well, but know them better so I can now begin to speak truth into their life and bring biblical counsel into their life? Some of you are gifted in students of God's word and theology. Uh, And and so have you thought, well, I can't just, I don't want to just sit here and just have this abstract understanding of all this stuff. How can I disciple others in the things of God's word? How can I teach others to know what I know and see what I see in God's word? Some of you are gifted in cooking, you know, and you're great, you know, making up these incredible dishes and and exploring the, the vast reaches of, I don't know, culinary YouTube, for one, you know, but have you thought, well, how can I be a blessing to others and, and, and make food for others and, be, and bless them? I have a feeling Alessandro is going to need some food in the uh, next couple of weeks. Some of you are just nice. That's a talent. That is a gift that God has given to you. Why are you nice? Are you trying to get people to like you? Or are you trying to get people to love God? In the warmth of your personality, in the ways that you make people feel at ease, 
Are you, can you take the next step to draw them towards the things of God, to help them see Christ more clearly? How can you use your talents strategically? You also have treasure. These are your actual things, your possessions, your stuff. How can you strategically use what you own? Your friend asked you to borrow your truck to move. What is the strategic gospel use of your car in that moment? What about your housing situation? People need a place to hang out you know, after practice or for some kind of social event. And you know you'd rather not mess it up because you just spent the time cleaning it, but what would it look like to strategically use that to serve others? What about your camera? Your whatever, your whatever tech you're kind of infatuated with at the moment, what would it look like to steward that and to use that for the good of others? Your craft supplies. My wife loves her craft supplies. Impeccably organized, immaculately curated. And she is so generous with it to want to share things with others and to make things for others. And beyond just the, the possessions you own, what about your financial treasure? How can you strategically own, strategically use your finances? Or I don't know what your financial situation is now, but whatever it is, however much or however little you think you have, it is a gift. And however much or however little you have, God is calling you to use your finances as a way to serve others. Or just think about it. If you were fueled by the gospel, if your life is an all-consuming sacrifice, if you're humble, if you are bent on strategically using all of your life to magnify the glory of God and to love others, what do you think that would mean for your financial generosity? Can you connect those dots? How can you use however much or however little you have to love and serve others? It could be a meal, a gift, an outing, a financial contribution. So you use your talents and your treasure. Last, you use your time. Time is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us. And he's given us each the same seconds of every day. Each of us has been gifted with our time and is a precious resource. And what that means then, as a precious resource, is that we can spend it for others. And yet so many of us have this beholden, entitled sense of our time that it's our time. Like the time after work, I just need, I need my time. I need this time on Sunday afternoon, I need my time. It's not your time. It's God's. He's simply lending it to you to use for his glory. What can you do to use every second of every minute, of every hour of every day to love and to serve others? <clears throat> now, one danger of thinking strategically about how to serve and how to use our gifts is as you're thinking about what you're gifted in and, and the different things that God has entrusted to you, that it can be really easy to twist this to become an excuse not to serve. Can you see how that might happen? Right, because you think about, you start to recognize where you're gifted. <clears throat> you start to think, well, I'm gifted in this area and not in this area. So if a need arises in this area, that must mean if I had to be strategic about it, I can't, I shouldn't do that. I should stay over here in this area of gifting where I'm really good. I'm really good at video games. That's, I, uh, praise the God, I'm really good at this thing. But over this thing over here, kids hate me. Can't deal with that. But here's the thing, is that, yes, we should be wise and we should be thinking about the ways that God has gifted us, but need 
always trumps gifting. Need always trumps gifting. You have to consider, yes, where am I uniquely gifted? Where am I uniquely entrusted with the stewardship? But if there's a need in front of us, then we have to forget what it is that we're gifted in. So how can I fit that need with whatever resources and limited gifting I have and God will meet that need? All right, the last point is that we must be sincere. We have to be sincere. Look, with the final grouping of gifts, Paul changes how he describes them. And he starts emphasizing them, not just what the gifts are, but the attitude you're supposed to have when you're using them. And he's describing this genuine sincerity, sincerity and excitement. Look at verse eight. He says, the one who contributes in generosity, right? The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He says, don't just give, give generously. Don't just lead a ministry, do it with zeal and passion. Don't just be merciful to people, but have a good attitude about it. Do it joyfully. I think of so many of you guys in this room who have lived this out. You're not just hired guns. You're the peop- some people in this room are the happiest people I know because you're using all that God has made you to be in the gospel to love the people that God has entrusted to you. Right? And the reason why you experience exactly what Paul's talking about here, the sincerity in your serving, is because of everything else he's mentioned in this passage. The mercy of God is real to you. And you are expending yourself for others the way as God, God has created you to be. You're humbling yourself before God and others. You're connected to a church family. You're seeing and stewarding and rejoicing in the gifts that God has given to you and you're using them in incredible ways. And when all those things are coming into play, it will lead to joy and sincerity and generosity and zeal. And you'll do it because you like it and you love it and you can't help it. But I think that there's always a sinking feeling that maybe one day it won't feel like that. And maybe some of you are already there. So after months and months or years and years of serving somewhere, what happens is you lose that sense of sincerity. Where you give, but it stops being as generous. You lead, but you don't do it with passion. You'll show mercy, but reluctantly. And you just fall into the same routine of doing the same thing every Sunday, every Thursday, every week, every year. And what is meant to be a delight becomes a duty. I think there are certain ways to evaluate why we may not feel particularly generous or zealous or cheerful in our service. Like, what do you do if you feel burned out and ministry feels really hard? I think for some of us, our instinct is to think, well, I guess I shouldn't be doing it anymore. If I'm not feeling that way, I shouldn't be a hypocrite. And I think for some of us, stepping back, reconsidering our commitments for a season, that could be a really wise choice. It's really worth considering whether we're being wise with limited time, limited resources, limited energy, whether we are stewarding or gifting well, whether we're simply stretching ourselves too thin and being proud and presumptuous about our, what our limits really are. Sabbath and rest are woven into creation. We need to humbly recognize our limits. All of that is true. But I think we also have to consider everything else that Paul has talked about when it comes to why we serve. Because if we're not truly experiencing the mercies of God, if the mercies of God don't wake us up in the morning and thrill us, if we're not letting his word transform our thinking, 
if we've grown proud and self-reliant and entitled and we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, if we're not truly embedding ourselves in a church family and we're living life alone, if we're not really thinking strategically about using all the things that God has given us to be a blessing to others, then it shouldn't surprise us if serving is hard and we feel burnt out and miserable. So it may be that the quantity or the intensity of how you serve needs to be evaluated. But I think sometimes that's maybe an easy way out. I think sometimes the harder and more important path of discovery is to examine the inner workings of our heart to see if our lack of joy and sincerity has more to do with what's inside of us than what's outside of us. You know, I've certainly had moments of like, like this in my life, in my family, at work, in relationships. There moments where I knew the right thing to do, but it felt joyless and rote. And my temptation in those moments is to want to escape and to pull back, to blame, to blame others, to blame circumstances, to avoid pain and discomfort and inconvenience. But in the end, the thing that always stands between me and joy and serving is my sin in my heart. If my heart is not fixed on Christ, if I'm not overwhelmed by his love for me, if my heart is swollen with pride and entitlement and selfishness, then of course serving will be painful. But it's when I can clearly see the ways that Jesus has served me and has sacrificed for me at great cost, when I see how little I deserve and how little I truly am, when I am overwhelmed by the fact that I am nothing, that I have nothing, that, I have, that I've earned on my own, when I'm aware of the deluge of grace that pours over me every day, that I'm surrounded by people that have modeled Christ's generous, humble service, then, it's only then, the serving doesn't become unbearable, but inevitable. It's not a chore, but it's a cheerful privilege. You know, I've been part of Lighthouse now for almost 20 years. Uh, as a college student, I randomly showed up on the first Sunday that Lighthouse ever had service through a happenstance of God's providence. And I have, over the course of 20 years, have seen this passage come to life again and again and again in the history of this church. But there was something that actually happened this past weekend that really took the cake. And for me, it will continue to be, I think, one of the most enduring, amazing examples of service that I have ever witnessed at Lighthouse. Uh, so we, this past weekend, had our annual youth retreat so I helped to oversee our youth program right now. And there were over 100 youth uh, there, junior high and high school students. We went to Pally Retreat, where you guys are having your retreat, I think, in ne next month. Is that right? And um, there were almost 30 volunteer staff, uh, two of our pastors, Pastor Wayne and Pastor Matt. They were our guest speakers, and they were amazing uh, in teaching God's word and shepherding our youth. It was an epic retreat in every way. And of the things that was most epic about it was the massive storm that came through. So Saturday was just a downpour of rain, and Sunday was, we were met in the morning with a soft blanket of snow. It was the most gorgeous thing. And um, some really unwise junior hires are just out there in shorts and t-shirts. Um, some of them may have been the children of some of the people in this room. Um, I, I, I can't say enough about the people that were there. Uh, the youth volunteer staff, some of them are here, right, in this room. Um, they gave up most of a three-day weekend to spend time in the mountains in both the freezing cold and simultaneously in unbearably stuffy rooms to shepherd our youth. And they did it with grace and humility. Truly some 
incredible acts of service. And so think about a retreat that you've ever been on and all the normal retreat stuff that has to happen and all the serving that has to happen. They did all of that. Amazing. Sunday comes, right? It's the end of retreat, right? And everything's packed up. We're ready to go. And we're waiting for our buses to take us home, take particularly our students back home. And the snow is falling faster and faster. Chains are required. The driving conditions are getting worse and worse as the day gets on. The high school bus comes on time. And we were able to get the high schoolers on there with a few staff and send them on their way. But the second bus that was going to fit the junior hires was running late. And so there we are in our meeting room with a bunch of antsy, twitchy, restless junior hires. They're just asking perpetually, where's the bus? Where's the bus? And they're waiting. They're running around in the snow, getting wetter and colder by the minute. And I don't know where the bus is. It's coming, presumably. It's not super fun. But the bus comes, mercifully. And we get them on the bus, a few adult staff, and we watch, and we, they're on there to watch out for them. So it was Michael Shu, Antonio Rhee, uh, Viet Trong, and Joyce. They're, they're both up here. And we send them on their way. And I remember telling my wife, Jamie, as we were driving down the mountain, because I wasn't on the bus, obviously. No, so, but I was, I, so I was driving down with my family, and I remember telling her, man, that was such a crazy weekend. Man, I can't, I'm so glad we're in the home stretch. And it's just, you know, we just get to go home and, and rest now. So the bus, handful of cars, we're heading down the mountains, dumping snow. We all have our chains on. And at some point, you get far enough down the mountain where the chains are no longer required, right? And so you, we pull off into a turnout. And all of us, like four or five cars and this bus, we're all working together to get the chains off our cars so we can head the rest of the way down the mountain. And so all the cars that are there, we successfully work as a team, like the Power Rangers, right? And we are able to get all the chains off. We're ready to go. And I look back and I see the bus driver like working his chains. And we're like, okay, I'm good. And so I'm going to head down the road first so I can get to church and be ready for when the bus arrives. And we'll just get going. The bus will be right behind us. The driver will be right behind us. About 45 minutes later, I get a phone call from Michael Shue. And he tells me that the bus has not left the turnout. It is still in exactly the same spot and hasn't left. And what had happened was the bus driver got one chain off of one of the tires when he went to go remove the second one, they found that the chain had wrapped itself around the axle and was impossible to remove. And so they're stuck there in the snow as the day is ending, and they're trying to figure out how to remove this chain from the axle of the car. But until that happens, this bus filled with 40 junior high students and Joyce and Viet is stuck in the snow on the mountains. <clears throat> and it turns out in God's province, that Pastor Matt and Pastor Wayne, they noticed that something was wrong. So while I, in my blissful ignorance, just headed on down in the mountain, right? Wayne and Matt decided to stay behind with their families. So Pastor Matt has like three kids, I think that are ages like five to one. And then Pastor Wayne, like his son was on the bus uh, as a junior hire, but his oldest daughter's in fifth grade and his youngest daughter's in second grade. They stayed with their families to see if they could help in some way. Um, and so the story with, and, and so Wayne told me what they were actually trying to do was that they were trying to help the bus driver remove the chain from the axle. So I don't know if you know Pastor Wayne and Pastor Matt. So Pastor Matt easily is the buffest pastor we have. Like he lives for, um, he lives for like a living. You know, like this is what he does, right? And Pastor Wayne for a long time was the second buffest pastor we had because during COVID he, dis he discovered working out and he got like, 
prison buff <laughs> during, <laughs> during COVID. And so I don't know what this looked like. I just imagine them like shirtless in the snow, trying to lift the bus and like turn this chain, right? And so anyway, so they're out there trying to get this thing going, right? Meanwhile, so myself, uh, Keith and Layton, who help oversee youth ministry, we gotten back to church. And what we had to do was we had to set up like a small command center in the foyer of the church to try to organize things. All these parents are milling around us, asking what's going on. We're trying to put out those kinds of fires, trying to communicate with everyone what's happening. And, and so what happens is the bus company decides to send a technician to fix the bus. But we don't know if that's going to work. So as a contingency plan, we decided what we're going to do is we're going to mount a rescue mission. And we're going to enlist however many parent volunteers are willing to go to drive up to the mountains to shuttle the kids if necessary, one minivan at a time. And so I send this email out to all the parents telling them the plan. And within seconds, my phone explodes. It's just completely overrun with all these text messages saying like, I volunteer as tribute. They're just willing to venture out into the mountains and go rescue these kids. And some of them weren't even parents. They were just church members who got wind of this and just wanted to help and volunteer. In the end, there were 16 cars. There were more that were willing, but there were 16 cars. They headed off to go pick up the kids. So at this point, it's getting really late. The kids are running out of snacks. They're running out of water. So Wayne and Mel, their car's free. So they go down the mountain and they find an In-N-Out and they tell the In-N-Out what's up and praise God for In-N-Out. In 15 minutes, they had made 50 double-doubles and thrown them in boxes and prepped it all, and it was ready to go, right? And so they, they hoof it up there like, I don't know, like I did a ride, you know, like champions, right? Just going out there, bringing stuff. Um, and, and they bring this like, you know, this, this, this manna of in and out to these starving children and they feed them. And I heard that was just, I have a video of them getting their food. It's amazing. Um, and, and they, and so anyway, the rescue cars are on their way. They're about 30 minutes out from the kids. The kids are eating their in and out and we get word that the technician arrived and he was able to get the chain loose. He was able to fix the bus, right? And they're ready to take the kids back to Torrance. So we have to call the drivers who are 30 minutes out and say, yeah, so we're good. <laughs> uh, you can turn home now, <laughs> you know? And they were so kind. It's like, whatever it means to get the kids home fastest and safest, totally fine. They turned around and came right back to Torrance. We call the drivers, they come back home. In the end, all the kids came home in the bus and this child came home in the bus safely about 10.45 p.m. on Sunday night, probably about seven hours late. I'm giving you the short version of this, if you can believe it. There are so many other crazy details I'm leaving out, so many crazy things. But I have to tell you, in all my years of ministry, that was one of the most bonkers town, crazy bananas situations I have ever been in. I'm still kind of shaking a little bit from it all. But one thing that stands out from all of it in the whole event is the beauty of God's people serving one another. That was the only reason why the whole thing worked. And it was the means by which God chose to work things out for his good and the good of his people. Everywhere you look in that story, you saw examples of the church humbly and joyfully and sacrificially loving and serving one another from junior hires who shared their snacks and devices with one another while waiting on a stuffy bus, from Pastor Matt and Pastor Wayne who stayed with their young kids to try to become bus mechanics. There are moms and dads and uncles and aunties who were willing at the drop of a hat to head off into a storm to go pick up kids. Some of them weren't even theirs. To Viet and Joyce and Michael and Tony who were cleaned up with the vomit of a kid who threw up after the bus got going again. 
Pastor Gavin going to pick up dinner for me and Leighton and Keith while we're trying to coordinate things here at church. Friends who texted me to tell me they were praying, they were willing to help if I needed anything. These are people who have been transformed by the gospel, who are willing to sacrifice whatever it took to use their time and talent and treasure to live an all-consuming life for the good of the people that they committed themselves to in this church and they were reminding each other that God is good in the midst of uncertainty. And it was kind of a scary thing, right? There was definitely some fear and some worry, but I would say that undergirding all of it was this determination to serve one another no matter the cost. You could tell that these people loved each other. And in the face of a thousand needs, they rose to meet that need. That's the living sacrifice that Paul has been talking about in Romans 12. That's what the mercies of God produces. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that's what God is calling you to. You can be that. You can be a part of that. You were meant to be a part of that for your joy and the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have called us to something better than just simply to live for ourselves and live for this age. You have called us to live for eternity and to expend this life for the good of others and the glory of your name. We thank you that we have this mercy that has been extended to us in the gospel that gives us a different perspective allows us to see our time and talents and treasures are not our own, but as stewardships that we can use and leverage for your glory and the good of the people you've entrusted to us. God, I pray for the men and women here that are just contemplating how to serve and how to serve more faithfully. I pray, Father, that you give them a joy and sincerity in their service. Give them a wisdom to know how best to steward all that you've entrusted to them. And God, would you bear fruit in their lives to help them to see that life is meant to be spent Life is meant to be spent on you and the good of others. So God, would you raise up out of this praxis fellowship, men and women who are transformed by the gospel and faithful servants of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.